watchers in the fourth dimension. You mean you can't control this machine? Well, of course I can control it. We've all got something to hide. Don't you think so, Commander? Kill the Doctor. Kill the Doctor. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And please do not throw hands at me. This episode, we're landing on a sand miner where the Doctor and Leela are faced with a sci-fi version of an Agatha Christie-style murder mystery. But before we get into that, Riley's going to take a quick look at the mail. Alrighty. The Mask of Mandragora had a couple comments. The first was from our good friend Alan Seiler. The first time I ever saw Doctor Who was Wednesday, November 23rd, 1983, the first broadcast of The Five Doctors on the day of the 20th anniversary. I was immediately hooked and desperately wanted more of this weird show. The following Saturday night, my PBS station ran its next regularly scheduled story, The Mask of Mandragora. This was my first real taste of The Fourth Doctor, since Tom Baker opted not to appear in The Five Doctors. Well, yeah, kind of spoiled us on that one, Alan. (laughs) (laughs) Right? For that reason, it has a special place in my heart. Yes, it's the weakest story in season 14, but there's still a lot that's great about it, and it had potential to be so much better. It does not work as a season opener, but on the other hand, it wouldn't work anywhere else in this season, so it may as well have been the opener. As you all said, the costuming, set design, casting, and acting all superb. I'd give this one a 6.5, but I'll raise it another half point slowly for the smoldering heat coming off of Marco and Giuliano. (laughs) Hubba hubba. So, final score, seven unpeeled oranges out of ten. Alan, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Astrazon Dangelbert Zebulon said, I want to see Hieronymus as the next companion to the Doctor. Watch him blame the Daleks or Cybermen on a bad conjunction between Mars and the birth of a two-headed goat. <laughs> <laughs> R.L. Gray says, please, as always, to listen to you, gang, a few thoughts. Regarding the eclipse being the linchpin for the helix doing its thing, maybe it can only exert its power through the cosmology of the people it's working through. So the eclipse being significant to Hieronymus, it was a subject of mental focus through which the helix could work. I don't know, that just sounds like a bunch of witchcraft to me. (laughs) Also, the biting the orange thing struck me too when I saw this story as a kid, so I tried it, and it was hideous. (laughs) Hey, considering the quality of the cuisine, maybe it's a particularly English... Practice. Boom. Roasted. Sir. (laughs) Sir. I assume it will be Queensbury rules. (laughs) I have to say it being English and growing up in England, I've never seen anyone do that. So it's even weirder. (laughs) He goes on to say Leonardo da Vinci will play a significant role in a story a few seasons from this one. And the doctor seems to be on very familiar terms with him by then. So maybe the events of this story were a prompt to the doctor to make the point of visiting Leonardo. Fine, I guess. <laughs> Paul Dovey says, I might be going against the grand on this one, but I love this story. It proper put the shits up me when it first aired. <laughs> Anthony, can I, get, can I get the American translation of that, perhaps? Scared the shit out of him. Gotcha. Thank you. I love the switch from the surreal and spooky Mandragora Helix to Renaissance Italy. For me, that is quintessential Doctor Who. The costume sets and locations are marvelous. The mask band are dead scary. You think you know what's coming, but they keep you waiting. The villainous pairing of Federico and Hieronymus is wonderful, with some good, sharp, witty dialogue. Personally, I think Louis Marx was spot on to include the politics. It is the age of Machiavelli as well as Da Vinci, and it is the politics that gives Hieronymus his power. 
Federico no more believes in his mysticism than Giuliano does, but he's happy to use the fact that most people do. Okay, I neither know nor care what Mandrago hopes to achieve from all this, but it's very entertaining watching it try. To be honest, it is one of my favorites from a pretty decent season. Nine out of ten astrological potties. Um, it has to be someone's favorite. Oh, the potties, right, because of the toilet. Yes, the, the toilet. toilet. Okay. <laughs> it took me a while to figure out where he was going with it, but I like, oh, that's good. I like it. Kieran James Evans says, so this one is the first Tom Baker story I just don't really care for. Ooh, words. I struggle to watch it. Something even Planet of Evil doesn't suffer from. And I'm not sure why, really. There's plenty of right stuff in there, but the execution is off. It doesn't gel well and thus suffers. You are right that Sarah's depiction has reverted, though maybe season 13 wasn't quite as good. Five and a half out of ten Welsh Italian villages. <laughs> and he goes on to say that the Mandragora Helix returns in the 2004 BBC PDA The Eleventh Tiger with the first Doctor Ian, Barbara, and Susan in China, 1865. And in the 2008 BBC NSA Beautiful Chaos with the Tenth Doctor and Donna in the modern day. Wow. All right. Okay, well, now on to something very dear to my heart, the 2023 Halloween special. J.M. Casey says, well, this is awesome. I just watched all of the Hammer Dracula series this year, and Amicus Horror Anthologies are among my favorite things ever, as I think I mentioned before. I definitely think the variance in tone, even within some of these films, is done on purpose. It sort of goes along with Riley's observation about how these films work. If we don't like one thing, just stick around for a bit, and something new will come along. That might even feel tonally very different. The Terry Thomas segment is 100% supposed to be a comedy, and yes, I think it works. I love her laugh at the end. Just so good. I think the Tom Baker segment is my favorite, and I always forget about the fourth one. I do think five stories is one too many. Agreed. Usually stick to four or even three with these, and it gives everything enough time to properly develop. I don't know three. I think three is too short. Four, four is, yeah, that's the sweet spot. And I do want to give a shout out to JM because he posts some extremely long commentary on our episodes on our Facebook. And when we include him in this, we cut him down quite a lot because we just oh. don't have time to read the whole thing. Okay. So, dear listener, if you're curious in what else JM says... Check out our Facebook page, go to our episode post where we first post the new episode, and there's normally quite a long piece from JM with some commentary. I mean, it's not just an opportunity to send messages to us, it's an opportunity to speak to other watchers, listeners, I guess, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, Cat, also known as Citrine Dragonfly, said, Vault of Horror was one of the movies my dad and I would watch in bits and pieces while eating breakfast back when I was in high school. We'd catch whatever cheesy or schlocky film was on and enjoy some time together. Now, when I read this comment earlier, <laughs> at the very beginning, I thought like, well, that is really interesting and bizarre. So they specifically had this one particular movie only until later on in the sentence do I realized like, oh, it was just what happened to be on. <laughs> so that would have been very interesting if it was the other way around. Anyway, Kat goes on to say, we'd catch whatever cheesier schlocky film. Mm -hmm. Tom Baker's portion of the story is phenomenal, and the part we'd see the most since we'd usually catch the last half hour or so. The whole anthology is so much fun. This era is my favorite for horror films. I tend to agree. I do seem to have a sweet spot for the 60s and 70s era, particularly England and Italy. I do want to say, I love that she and her dad watched horror movies over breakfast over before breakfast. she went to school as yeah. a teenager. That's amazing. That's good parenting right there. Yes, it is. And we have some comments about our Hand of Fear episode. Chris Nelson said that Eldrad's female form costume, like the Zygons or the Robots of Death, is one of the more laudable ones of the classic era. Ones which would hold up well now. Or in the case of the Zygons, better than. <laughs> Adam Wright said, Eldrad must live. Yeah. <laughs> 
The Hand of Fear gave us a great departure for a companion. Sarah Jane went back home of her own volition and without having to fall in love. I love that she was the focus of her final story. Thank you for pointing out the intern Renu Setna. And in this story, we get a gender-bending villain, an iconic outfit for Sarah Jane, the doctor weaponizing his scarf, just like in Robot, and some memorable departing quotes, such as, don't forget me. Eight out of ten acid-filled darts to the heart. Ooh. Yeah. I yeah. really like that metric. Mm-hmm. That's a good yeah. one. Mark Dunstan said, was a good story in a way. I loved episode one. The female Eldred costume was fantastic. Shame about Sarah Jane leaving. She worked well with Tom Baker. Well, I think everyone can agree with you on that one. Austin Patterson said, I once read that amongst all the companion goodbyes because of romance or death or space ejection. <laughs> mm. um, what? <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Poor Katarina. <laughs> Sarah's stands out because that goodbye between Tom and Liz feels like two kids who have been playing all day, but the sun is setting and they have to say goodbye, never knowing if they'll see each other again. Always makes me tear up thinking about it that way. Wow, that was uh, quite poetic. Yes, I guess so. Wow. And moving on, Paul Arthur, also known as Doctor Who 60s, 70s, 80s on Instagram, says, listening to Anthony summarize the development of this story, you have to wonder why the Bristol boys just could not write a simple, straightforward story. They had written for Who four times by this point, so you'd think they would have a good idea of what works and what doesn't. Yet there they were, trying to squeeze in Omegans, Drax in the 1990s, just bonkers. Hmm. Chat Grande 67 says Stephen Thorne single-handedly tried to ruin every Doctor Who serial he ever appeared in! Exclamation mark. Why the hell did they keep employing him? <laughs> that is a great question. Ooh, strong words there. Yes, very. And wrapping up, David Patty says, just listen to the Hand of Fear episode. A lot of fun, and it made me think more kindly about a story I'd always considered a bit meh. By the way, I can remember this first time around, and yep, even in the 1970s, even on a CRT screen, that did look like a big old floppy spanner. So six and a half big old floppy spanners out of 10. And Amazing. We're done talking about floppy spanners. So back to you, Anthony. Thank you, Riley. And as a reminder to our listeners, we really do love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And as you've just heard, we do try to read out as many of them as possible on the show. So please do get in touch with us. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and X at watches 4 d or you can email us at watches4d at gmail.com. Now moving on to the robots of death and heading behind the scenes. This serial has its origins from when scriptwriter Chris Boucher was writing the previous serial, The Face of Evil. Producer Philip Hinchcliffe and script editor Robert Holmes had decided that the character of Leela, introduced in that very serial, would stay on through to the end of the season. With no time to brief other writers on her character, Boucher became the natural choice to write her second adventure. Boucher quickly got to work on his initial ideas for a story to be titled The Storm Mine Murders, which was to be influenced by Hinchcliffe's ongoing interest in the interactions between people and robots. Holmes, meanwhile, wanted a budget-conscious storyline to balance the anticipated expense of the season finale. He suggested a murder mystery in a confined setting, and Boucher was duly influenced by Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. Boucher was soon formally commissioned to turn his initial ideas into a full storyline now entitled Planet of the Robots. Boucher also drew inspiration from other sci-fi works. Clifford D. Simak's short story Bathe Your Bearings in Blood provided the element of an outside influence inciting a robot rebellion. 
The rules keeping the robots in check were similar to those created by Isaac Asimov in his short story Liar, which was later included in the anthology I, Robot, while the concept of the sand mine drew upon elements from Frank Herbert's classic Dune. Boucher fully acknowledged his sources by name-checking sci-fi writers throughout his scripts. Uvanov was a corruption of Asimov, Pool was a reference to Pool Anderson, while Taryn Capel was a homage to Carol Sapek, who first coined the term robot in his 1921 play R.U.R. During scripting, the serial was renamed to The Robots of Death, and it was discovered that part two was severely underrunning, and so material about the Sandminer's overloading motive units was added to its closing stages. The original cliffhanger had actually focused on Zilda's murder, which now took place a little earlier in that episode. When the serial moved into production, Michael E. Bryant was assigned as director. This was his sixth and final outing on the show. We'd previously seen his work on season 8's Colony in Space, season 9's The Sea Devils, season 10's The Green Death, season 11's Death to the Daleks, and season 12's Revenge of the Cybermen. So a fair number of serials there. Joining him behind the scenes, we have a few returning crew members. Chris Oily John continues as production unit manager, and Dudders continues, yes, continues, to provide incidental music. Also returning is designer Kenneth Sharp, returning to the show for the third and final time, and we hadn't seen him for a while. He previously designed season 4's The Macro Terror and season 9's The Claws of Axos. And providing costumes, we have the only contribution of Elizabeth Waller, but she would go on to have a very highly decorated career winning a BAFTA for her work on Poirot, a Primetime Emmy for Elizabeth R, and a slew of other BAFTA nominations for Pygmalion, The Company of Wolves, The Chamomile Lawn, and a show called Riley Ace of Spies, which has nothing to do with our own Riley. Oh, that's what you think. It is a spy (laughs) show. So quite the hire with her. Back to our director, however, he didn't really want to return to the show. And once he made the commitment, he was apparently very unhappy with the scripts. And he resolved to improve the serial with strong visual elements, and he worked with the designer and costume designer to conceive a distinct Art Deco vibe. Now, during production, Hinchcliffe was contemplating leaving Doctor Who at the end of the season, and Holmes was considering following him out the door. However, head of serials Bill Slater asked Hinchcliffe to remain for a fourth year, to which he agreed. So Hinchcliffe and Holmes duly got to work planning season 15, including plans for a historical adventure in which Leela would have been given a love interest. No. One set on a generation-spanning vessel, a London-based tale in which a huge spaceship arrived above the city, a story inspired by the works of H. Ryder Haggard, and another based on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. However... By autumn 1976, the decision to extend Hinchcliffe's tenure was re-evaluated. While he had guided (laughs) Doctor Who to higher audience numbers than ever, he was quite often the target of critics, Mrs. Mary Whitehouse, who complained that the show now depicted too much horror and violence. Meanwhile, newly promoted BBC producer Graham Williams was developing two new shows, a hard-hitting police drama to be called Hackett, and an American co-production called The Zodiac Factor. The latter of these ran into issues, and it was decided instead to move Williams onto Doctor Who. And in turn, Hinchcliffe would take over Hackett, which was considered to be a better fit for his edgy style, and he would redevelop it into a show called Target. So after this, we've just got one more Hinchcliffe story, guys. I guess he couldn't hack it. Hey! (laughs) All right, back to the robots of death. 
The first episode of the finished version went out on January the 29th, 1977, and as usual, it went out over four consecutive Saturdays, with the final part going out on February the 19th, 1977. Ahead of the serial's transmission, there were press reports suggesting that Pamela Salem, who played Toos, was joining the show as another new companion. However, it turned out that these stories were actually made up by her publicist, and the production team had never had any intent to retain Toos beyond this serial. Hmm. But we can talk <laughs> about Toos when we get into it. And with that, we're going to head into our short summary, for which I'm going to kick things back over to Riley. Over to you, my friend. Thank you. The Doctor and Leela get to be in their own Agatha Christie mystery on a spice harvester from Dune with a bunch of glam rockers and General Zod, who are chilling in posh luxury like the Eternals and Zardoz. The Doctor and Leela must figure out who is behind these killer robots who have the best perms I have ever seen. I would have done a parody of the Tin Little Indians rhyme by doing Eight Little Miners, but it doesn't really work when just about everyone is just killed by strangulation. Anyway, the Doctor figures out who the mastermind of this robot revolution is, and successfully thwarts him while we get the delightful bonus of Leela sounding like an adorable mouse. What title do you prefer? And then there were robots or murder on the Kill All Humans Express? <laughs> Definitely murder on the Kill All Humans Express. That's Absolutely. awesome. All right, let's talk about this one. So part one. Julie. <laughs> well, what was that for? No, I'm saying like, I feel like me and Anthony have talked so much. I'm dying to hear what you have to say. Well, okay, yeah, sorry, everyone. I am trying to decide how I like some of the model work done for the outside of these mining vehicles. I don't know what else to call them. Because sometimes I really liked it. And then every once in a while, I'm like, the lighting just seems really weird right now. And you're talking about the outside, the outside shots of the miner. You know, when I was watching that, it's only roughly six years later, but also with a motion picture budget. There were some shots in Dune that I feel like were only maybe a couple grades better <laughs> than what we saw. Yeah, I'm Fair. with you on that, Riley. <laughs> so I understand where you're coming from, Julie, but I don't know, maybe it's just feature of the times. We still haven't really gotten true great model work other than, I guess, in 1977, original Star Wars. Being limited to their time, I can't really think of anything model work-wise that looked as good. Yeah, and Star Wars happened a few months later than this, mm -hmm. and I think that really was kind of a kick up the ass yeah. to everyone else. But luckily, I love the inside, so I forgave the outside because I love the inside. Everything about the inside is so gorgeous, it, not just the sets, but also how the robots are kind of a deco theme, the costumes are deco. It's just beautiful. It is wonderful. I have to say this is probably the best art direction I can recall in a Doctor Who serial. Absolutely. 100%. And the other thing is that our robots, did anyone else get reminded of the robots from Voyage of the Damned? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, when I saw Voyage of the Damned in Christmas 2008, it reminded me of this. So I guess it was the other way around for me. But right, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to, however, talk about some of these people and some of their names because, oh, buddy. Oh. <laughs> so if you have something to say about design first, let's do that and then we'll get to the names. No, let's get to the names. I have to say, I'm really upset that they killed Chubb first because... <laughs> I wanted to hear that name more often, and I wanted to get at least somewhere down the line, a line reading where someone says, ah, back in the storage facility, they got Chubb. <laughs> See, I at least had a note here of he just wanted to get his hands on Chubb. Oh, yeah. And he got his hands all around Chubb. <laughs> 
you two are terrible. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the only one. I mean, that's the other thing is that we praise the design of the robots. We praise the art direction of the sets. Da, da, da. The costumes for the humans and the makeup kind of a little wishy-washy on that one. Like, I'm okay with it, but it sometimes it gets just a little bit too wacky. For example, you can tell that he is the commander because he has the most ridiculous hat. Those headdresses yes. are amazing. I would also love to point out that the guy who plays Desk, his hair looks oh like God. the Who's from Whoville. <laughs> yes. Incidentally, David Bailey, who played Dask, would go on to be Cotton in three of the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Oh, really? I know. And that makes me so very happy. Oh, boy. Yeah, the names and the costumes and the makeup. Oof. I don't know what was going on there. But, you know, it definitely felt very alien. And that was good. I appreciated it for that fact. I mean, plus also having a lady with a mohawk mm-hmm. yeah. headdress was great. And let's talk about that. We had two ladies. Two ladies. Two. Is that allowed? Not just two ladies, but one of them was a person of color as well. Yes. This is progressive by the Hinchcliffe era's standards anyway. Oh, absolutely. And they had not just speaking roles but actual jobs to do and opinions on things. And that was so proud of you, Doctor Who. Yeah, Zilda gets killed off relatively quickly. But I have to say, I love Toos. Same here. I would not have been upset if she had stayed on as a companion. And honestly, I'm going to be a sleazy guy for a second. But Uh Pamela Salem is absolutely gorgeous. I wouldn't say that's sleazy. I say that's a nice compliment. You said it in a nice way. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'll take that. I agree with you on really liking Twos. I liked her because coming from a love of horror movies, especially as this is a Agatha Christie murder mystery, we definitely put that note in there, but also has the feelings of kind of like a slasher where our camp counselors are getting knocked off one by one. And some of them aren't so smart about it or just turn into weak, wimpy little crybabies like Poole. But Twos, on the other hand, she, as it goes on, like, keeps her head like she does get frightened when she gets attached in her cabin but she does later on develop like no don't open the door that's what the doctors you know they could be tricking us let's hold those thoughts riley and come back to that when we get to part four but i agree she's just generally awesome i do want to talk about the dynamics between this group because i think there's some really smart scripting the sand miner when it's not chasing a storm is mostly controlled by the robots so these humans have nothing better to do than sit around getting massages from the robot and winding (laughs) each other up. They are just fucking with each other in the beginning. You look at Chubb telling Borg about the robot going wrong and wrenching that guy's arm off just as the robot is manipulating Borg's arm as part of the massage. They're just awful to each other. And I like that they give hints of certain things. There's a few things I wish they went a little bit deeper on. For example, with Zilda being from a rich family. One of the founding families. One of the founding families. I'm like, oh, tell me more about the founding families. Is it going to be like the Sacred 28 in Harry Potter? Like, let's do this. It's like there's a lot of world building here that you want more of. There's a mention of Caldor City. Mm -hmm. There's this robot based society and these founding families. And it's like, yes, I want more of this, but we just don't have time for it. And it's funny because one of the strengths of the serial that I discovered was it does such a great job of really making you understand who these characters are, making them fully fleshed out 
I yeah. understand how they would react. I can expect how they would react under duress. And I'm wondering, is that just the quality of the writing? Or is the writer taking the techniques of Agatha Christie because she would do that so well in her stories when you have a large cast of characters and you still need to understand a little bit about them before each one of them gets knocked off? So I'm wondering if that's stealing the style or is that just something that where you have that ability because they do it in only four episodes. That's amazing. Well, think about it like this. This is the same guy who wrote The Face of Evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and we yeah. talked about the world building in that. We talked about the characters in that. And we're seeing elements of that again here. I think Chris Boucher was just a very, very talented writer. Yeah. We've talked about like everything in general about this serial, but we haven't talked about our progression, which is the killer robots with glowing red eyes, which... By the way, everyone knows if you see a robot whose eyes are glowing red, it's turned evil. <laughs> yep. And just like we learned from the Simpsons Halloween special about the evil Krusty doll, all you have to do is you have to find the switch on the back to switch it from evil back to good and you're fine. <laughs> I love these robots. And what I like about it, it's not an immediate turn. It's one by one. They seem to be getting taken over. So it's Mm -hmm. nice to see that it's not just a, oh, hey, we flipped a switch and now all of them are bad. I appreciated that aspect of it. I also wanted to talk about the Doctor and Leela. Hold that thought, Julie, because I do want to mention what I like about the robots turning evil is it starts happening explicitly after Chubb has wound Borg up and Dask steps in and said it's impossible. Oh, (laughs) Right. (laughs) We get that whole thing. We are told as the audience, there are so many safeguards in place, this can't happen. And then we see the robot with its eyes glowing red attacking Chubb. So we've heard one thing and immediately it starts to go sideways. And now let's talk about the Doctor and Leela. I want to talk about how Leela is so entertained by normal things. When she gets into that room and the couch is there, she just jumps around on the couch like a kid. I'm like, oh, Leela, you're adorable. They do a good job about that, too, because it could have been so easy for them to do the whole kind of from a primitive culture kind of thing. Like, what is Sofa? I do not understand. But no, you can see she has intelligence. She just doesn't have experience. And... The things that she is a bit like, what is this? It's that scene in the TARDIS where she's with the Mm yo-yo and she thinks it's part of making the TARDIS work. Right. Which, when it's something so far in advance of where she is like the TARDIS, that kind of makes sense. But it would be insulting if she'd been like that with a sofa, to your point, Riley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she also grasp the concept of these metal men, as she said, especially their ability to communicate with each other without necessarily being around each other. Yeah. I mean, she grasps things very quickly. And I just, I feel like there's so much bad writing when it comes to the primitive character, the Tarzan kind of character, so to speak, that it usually gets written very poorly, but they did a great job with her. I think there were some things learned with, guess what? I'm going to bring up my favorite. He goes, going to hate me. But with Jamie, he wasn't necessarily <laughs> primitive. But he was from a different time period, and he kind of learned things pretty easily. Yes, he yelled out Metal Beasties a lot, but he usually just went with it. So I think they learned a few things along the way as well. And it's not in part one, but you see that with Leela. You see that intelligence because as soon as she meets Poole, she sees that body language and realizes not everything is what it seems with him, something that no one else picks up on. So that intelligence and that ability to read people is there. She's not stupid. She's just not as technologically advanced as everyone else. Right. 
And I love that. That's such a great take. And we'll see where that goes. I guess we should be running towards our cliffhanger of part one where the daughter gets drowned in coffee beans. Because he was an idiot. (laughs) Yeah, of course, because they get captured and then they escape and they get separated and the doctor finds the body in the hopper and as soon as he goes in, the door closes and it starts to fill with sand. That just seems kind of par for the course for the doctor and that's our cliffhanger. Yeah. Into part two we go. I love the snorkel. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very doctor. Very doctor. And it makes sense right. that he would have one around. Yeah. Just casually in his dimensionally transcendental pockets. Also, it's how a cartoon character would handle that conundrum. Yeah. We're back to Bugs Bunny. There you go. And going back to the crew dynamics, nobody obeys Ivanov. He basically says, don't go after them. Let the robots do it. And almost every single one of them is like, screw it, we're going to go after him. You mean Commander Dick? (laughs) Yeah, Commander Dick. (laughs) Am I wrong? He's not the dickish out of all the commanders or like bosses we've had to deal with on the show. And he doesn't seem to have a complete delusion of being undermined at all times. He seems like he's just trying his best out there. He's very (laughs) single-minded as well. He's very focused on profit. Mm -hmm. Um, Just stepping back to episode one for a second, there are the reports of murder coming in. Someone has died and he just wants to ignore it and chase after the mineral seam. So he is absolutely putting profit over people. And yeah, he is a bit of a dick. He is a bit of a bad boss. But equally, later we find out there's another side to his story as well. Yeah, I wish they had developed that part a little bit more and bridged the gap a little bit more. Yeah. I love the fact that the one robot figured it out because there was a high impurity level to the ore. <laughs> Good job, doctor. <laughs> and, you know, that would be a fairly high impurity with something the size of the doctor in there. Well, and there was another body in there as well. Also true. Two humanoids in there, very high impurity level. Let's talk about Leela and D84 when Leela finds Cass who that's another, you know, minority in it, and he's killed off right at the beginning of part two. We don't find out much about Cass. No, not too much. This is one of those few times where I know I've praised the serial for being concise and short, but they execute everything so very well, they earned a six-part serial, I think. And it would have been a little bit more fun, and we would have gotten more world building and would have known these characters even better. So I agree with you on that in regards to Cass. But I love D84. The logic is perfect when he says to Leela, if I had killed him, would I not kill you too? I mean, yeah, probably. Yeah, and he is wonderful. I feel like that's a classic kind of type of character in sci-fi robot stories. There's, you know, we always had the kill all humans robots. That's classic. But sometimes we always have like the sacrificial one like good robot. Oh, yeah, it's (laughs) classic Asimov. Right, right. And also he's in the collector's limited edition black chrome. (laughs) oh so i actually wanted to touch upon one thing with the robots so at one point in this little section my favorite commander dude does say like d is for dumb and i was like man he's such a that's why i kind of thought that way and then come to find out and i guess it was part three when i finally realized that there are actually three different categorizations of robots and dumb is one of them but it took me a long time to actually understand that and dumb literally being the unable to speak meaning of dumb as opposed to the stupid yes. meaning yeah yeah i want to talk about that scene where uvanov says that to leela firstly before uvano comes in 
There's that shot where she's sitting in the chair and spins around to talk to D84 looking like a CEO. What a badass she is. <laughs> and then when Ivanov comes in to question her, he slaps her. Mm-hmm. And what's her reaction? She kicks him in the balls and threatens to cripple him. <laughs> it's wonderful. Amazing. She has no fear at all. Victoria would never. Yeah. I don't know why I chose to pick on Victoria. I think it's because she was the most obvious peril monkey that we've had. And also, she was the most prim and proper. She would never do something like that. Lilo would, like, go up there. She'd Mike Tyson a bit. She'd, like, bite his (laughs) ear off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I just love that entire interaction. And, again, we really start seeing the tension between everyone. Like, it seems at this point that Poole kind of suspects Dask. He doesn't seem certain that it was Leela and the Doctor that murdered the characters that have been murdered so far and says something like, we've all got something to hide, haven't we, Commander? And he's just throwing shade everywhere. And then you've got Borg on edge, like when the Doctor offers him a jelly baby, plus one to the jelly Slap. baby account. He says, shut up and smacks them out of his hand. I mean, everyone is so tense at this point. It's really well directed. And it's funny too, because I, for a little while, was suspecting Poole more than anyone. Because he's shifty. Yeah, he's shifty, but it seemed almost too obvious. But also at the same time, because we were dealing with a person who his name was not anyone on the ship, it's like, well, he could be someone with a different name. Yeah. Just the way these guys hate each other. Oh. I mean, Zilda and Borg, they really start going for it. Right. It feels like what happens, and I think this type of scene is a crucial type of scene in every single murder mystery where we have this kind of like intermission between murders where the remaining survivors are all pointing figures trying to figure out who it is while our detective or inspector is still trying to suss things out and may have an idea but of course that won't be revealed towards our last scene in the last act but what's so great about these type of scenes is that you're right it's that tension that needling that personal attacks and and people using false logic to try to entrap people is very much like 12 angry men in a way and it's just that's a wonderful little scene that always shows up in these type of stories and it was a lot of fun here and i think the execution of this it's written in a very classic way as you say riley but you've equally got to have the right actors and you've got to have the right director Mm -hmm. and i think all of those are on fire here yeah and that's a good point because you know the direction I was so surprised about how much I enjoyed it in the shots, even though I would argue there was no shot really that struck me as being quite original or novel. Everything seemed kind of by the book. But it's just very competently done. Yes, exactly. Like we get our POV killer robot shots. Uh, Well done. But well done. Everyone has seen that shot. 10 different ways. Oh, like the Silorians when it's terrible? Yes. Yes, but it looked great in this. It was wonderful. It's one of those things where I feel like every single element is something that you know what's coming. You know what to expect other than who the quote unquote murderer is, but it's just executed so well. And speaking of the dynamics, while everyone is laying into each other, I love what the doctor says to Borg, which is, You know, you're a classic example of the inverse ratio between the size of the mouth and the size of the brain. (laughs) That's an amazing insult. (laughs) And we very quickly find out that Zilda is clearly not the killer because we see a robot being given orders to kill her. Right. (laughs) Yep. And that's one thing that I could criticize this on. I feel like 
they're giving away too much of the game there. I would have liked to not have the direct scenes that tell us this person's going to be killed in the next few scenes. Like, just surprise me. I don't mind it as such because you still don't know what's driving the robots to do it. And that's the crux of the whole thing. It's not necessarily who's next. It's a why in the world are the robots doing it? Because for a while, they didn't even really mention that robot guy. So for a while, I was just like, okay, so the robots are just crazy. Cool. Don't know how that happened. And then they finally are like, oh, there was this guy who was really into robots. I'm like, ah, there it is. (laughs) Right. Which that also, I don't know how I feel about that element of it. Like, I understand it. I understand you have to give, you have to change someone of our cast of characters that we meet at the beginning. You have to give a backstory to provide motive. Maybe I needed a little bit more explanation as to like, okay, so he really likes robots and really hates human beings. I wish I could have gotten a better understanding of that, of why. And I'm going to say what I'm saying a lot this time. Let's come back to that. All right. Because <laughs> we're still in part two. <laughs> I'm like, a lot happens in part four, to be fair. Yeah, it really does pick up speed because really we're just knocking off people. And I know. I love that there's backstory between Zelda and Ivanov that he was involved in her brother's death. We find that out just before she dies and she accuses him of being a murderer and that puts some suspicion on Ivanov. Equally, another part of amazing, amazing world building is the Doctor talking about the permanent unease of robots and if the robots are killing people, he believes that it will be the end of this entire civilization. That's big and that really builds this world even further. And then last mention before we get to the cliffhanger and move into part three. Once Zilda's dead, it really does get put on Uvanov. I mean, Poole mm-hmm. believes it was him. He has him confined to quarters and Toos takes command. Hey, Toos in command. I know. But the motive units go haywire. It's sabotage. And the doctor builds trust by helping to fix it. So Toos yells she's going as the sand miner lurches and is heading towards blowing up. And that's our cliffhanger. And we're into part three. Yeah, we have our big crash after finally fixing the miner before we have a complete catastrophe. Everyone gets a little dinged up and injured. And my favorite part, personally, of part three is the fact that, of course, in this colorful, colorful society, gauze has glitter. (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty interesting. (laughs) Interesting way of doing that. And what I like throughout the whole thing is, again, Toos assumes command. She admits, this actually hurts after I finally let that sink in. And so she's like, okay, everything is fine. I'll get some rest so I can come back. And I'm like, you know what? That's actually the most logical thing that someone would do. And as we get further and further along, she's actually really good. And I feel like this episode very heavily puts suspicion on Ivanov. And then there's one thing that kind of ruins it. And again, I think this is disappointing to me. When SV7 is receiving the signal, it's very clearly Dask. Mm. I didn't catch it. Oh, that little, the kaleidoscope vision. Yeah, it was David Bailey's facial features. Yeah, yeah. Maybe because I have seen this so many times. No, I get you. I know who it was, and but watching it, I was like, ooh, looks a bit obvious to me. Wasn't he earlier wearing a mask? Couldn't he have just worn the mask? And also we, of course, our crucial detail in our final climactic scene is the voice. So he doesn't even have to be seen on a screen at all. 
Yeah, he could just wear the mask he was wearing later when he was reprogramming the Vok with right. the probe. Yeah. Yeah. A good point. We also get a conversation, I believe it's Leela, and she's supposed to watch him. And there's first the conversation about the water having no taste. Yep. I love to think about that. Although it's like, yeah, maybe it was like my grandparents who had sulfur water. That was gross. Did anyone think that was going in the direction that he was going to tell her like, yeah, it's been yeah, refiltered so many times because it's our urine. That I think was the implication. Okay, good. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it wasn't said explicitly because this was going out at 6 p.m. on a Saturday and you don't want kids thinking about drinking urine. But yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> the implication. And Paul at this point also says, I'd rather live with people than robots. Yeah. That, I think, is the first hint of his coming mm-hmm. bout of robophobia. <laughs> Which I didn't know was a thing. Is that actually a, the real <laughs> term for a person? I don't is... know. It's what it's called in the story and in <laughs> <Okay>. universe. Because <laughs> it's so, it seems so slapped together. It's the equivalent of like, that's a wrench. No, it's not a wrench. It's a space wrench. <laughs> it's robophobia. Actually, apparently it is. That's the oh, actual wow. name for it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that makes sense. There probably isn't an ancient Greek word for robot. So there you go. After he locks Leela in, one of my favorite lines, too, was he walks by desk and he's like, what are you doing? My job. (laughs) (laughs) So, so catty. (laughs) Because they all hate each other. Yes. (laughs) It's brilliant. And, you know, you're locked in a small environment with like seven other people for months on end. And yeah, you're going to start getting pissed off with everyone. (laughs) Oh, do we know who was sleeping with who then? Because that also would happen. Hmm. Good one. Well, obviously, Dask isn't sleeping with anybody other than maybe a calculator. (laughs) (laughs) I think Toos has taste, so if anyone, it's Pool, because he's the only decent one out of the guys. Pool's a wimpy guy. He's kind of wimpy, though. Yeah. She's not sleeping with Borg, because he's a dick. She's not sleeping with Ivanov, because he's a dick. Maybe Cass, who we don't know anything about. We don't know anything about Maybe Toos has her hands on (laughs) Chubb. Okay, sorry, I had to go on that tangent. But also, the other thing that really should have put it in my head that it was Dask, now looking at it, was how in the world did he miss the hand covered with blood and guts? And it's like, (laughs) oh, because he was the bad guy. That's why he didn't notice the hand covered with blood and guts. Cool. And that's what drives Poole to his breakdown, is seeing that. And I think that then you know, very much ties into what the doctor was saying about the breakdown of this civilization if this gets out. It's quite scary. Yeah. That was a hell of a breakdown, though. Yeah. What I do want to say is I think this story actually does a fairly good job of humanizing these robots. Mm. Because you kind of grow to like SV7. You grow to really like D84. Yeah. And then when you see that Vok being altered with the probe going into the brain, it seems so utterly distressed. And it's Mm -hmm. really sad and hard to watch. I agree. And obviously it's helped by their appearance, their humanoid in appearance, other than like being three squares stacked on top of each other (laughs) with arms. But I think also what you're getting at there, Anthony, is that when they're having their kind of control taken away from them or being destroyed, the repetition of words, it's very creepily elicits like a stroke or something. And it's very unsettling. Yeah. And then that adds like emotion into D84 when he realizes that someone in the crew could have been substituted from the doctor's logic. Mm -hmm. He says, I have failed. 
and he just sounds so sad. Yeah, he's a robot, he doesn't have emotions, but because of the way this is done, you project those emotions onto him. Right. I love it. And that's how they get you, Anthony. You've got to buy into my robophobia. That's how they trick you. And when you start seeing things through their eyes, you realize everyone is so rude to them constantly. Even my darling angel, Toos, she's kind of mean to them as well. Think about that, everyone, next time you're upset with your toaster or your blender. Yeah, or your laptop. <laughs> or your laptop. My toaster does not have any sort of AI in it. So I think my toaster is fine. I can yell at it. But would you be able to yell at it if it had a face like a human? <laughs> Why would my toaster have that? <laughs> Questions. Okay. Towards the end, I'm getting worried about Toos because they're going after her. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. I really didn't want them to kill another lady. It's when SV7 orders the robots to kill. He orders them to kill Toos, the doctor, and Leela. So the ones that are left unaccounted for, because SV7 then says, and I will kill the others. You've got Ivanov, Pool, or Dask. Pool's not in a state to do anything at this point. So it's at this point, Ivanov or Dask. Oh, and bringing up Pool's little freak out, I believe this is where we've had Leela meet up with him. She's doing her own little investigation separate from the doctor at this part of the story. I really like that scene where she meets up with him and he's completely just curled up in a ball hiding. Yeah. Totally broken. Right. I love how he goes on about saying how robots are like walking around dead people. Yeah. Oh. And I have to admit to see this is a murder mystery. And I was like, I there will be a twist. What is the twist? Oh, I, I thought, ooh. I think Julie is right there with me. I thought the twist was that we're going to find out in this society that these humanoid robots, they have this outer shell and not to give... Get ready for spoilers from a 45-year-old film, but there was a Disney film, live-action sci-fi horror film, yeah, that's right, Disney, called The Black Hole, mm. where the robots, where you think are robots, are actually the deceased bodies of a crew oh, of a no. ship, and you don't know because they just have like, a, they're just got plating in front of them, so you don't know underneath it, it's just a dead body nope. moving around. Nope. That's what I thought was going to happen for a second, I'm like, oh my god, did the Black Hole steal this? But it didn't, but it made me feel really creeped out. It was awesome. Mine was not that drastic. I thought a potential thing that had happened was that Pool was tearing blah, 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 because I didn't recognize the guy's face and that uh. he had accidentally created them in such a way and he didn't expect them to kill everybody. And he's like, oh, sh what did I do? I thought it was going to be like a creation mm -hmm. person who all of a sudden everything is out to kill everyone that he didn't mean for it to happen. Yeah. More obvious. Before we wrap up this episode, one little interaction between D84 and the Doctor I adore is where D84 is following the Doctor and he says, I heard a cry. <laughs> that was me. And they just repeat this like three or four times. It's just really charming to me. <laughs> All right, so we end this with the Doctor in Taryn Capel's workshop. Ivanov finds him there, and he thinks the Doctor did it, or he accuses the Doctor. Right, right. And then a robot shows up, ready to kill the Doctor, and that's our cliffhanger. And what I like is, up until this point, the way Ivanov accuses the Doctor, he said, you shall die for this. It's not necessarily an accusation of you did what the robots are doing it could be read as you will die for finding my secret layer and it's not <laughs> until the beginning of part four that it becomes obvious that it's not ivanov when the robot is attacked by ivanov trying to save the doctor so imagine watching this in 1977 you've got a week where 
you think it could still be Ivanov. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love when the doctor is sitting there, he's like, well, either they're out to kill you or they're out to get to this, which means they'll kill me first. Let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, it's only really Dask who's left. Right. Yes. I mean, unless we have, like, Julie was kind of mentioning, well, Julie went in the direction of pool as in, I've lost control of him. I thought of, like, pool is just trying to pull a fast one everyone by removing suspicion by becoming a sniveling ball of fear <laughs> that's what i thought but speaking of part four can we please get back to the thing that caused me the most distress the entire episode poor twos in her cabin why did she open the door she knows they're out there why did she open it again like she already was successfully got the hand off and got the door back closed why did she have to open it again i thought it overrode and got into her room yeah that's the read i got oh, okay. on it okay all right, good. But seeing her get strangled from the viewpoint oh. of the robot is brutal. And what's really awful about it is they put makeup on her neck so that yes. she like she has effectively bruising on her neck for the rest of the episode. I was mm-hmm. so impressed about that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't actually think they would do that because a lot of times that gets missed in television shows and, and in movies. And I'm very proud of them, actually. Yeah. And part of the thing that's interesting to me about the two's strangling cabin scene is that when we later on find that she actually was not murdered, because you're left assuming that she was. Yes. Everyone knows in classic murder mystery fashion that immediately your suspicion turns to her, right? It's like, why did she not get killed? She should have been killed. Was this a way of like throwing people off? So just a point here of how the serial does a good job of constantly moving your attention from one person to another to another. What I like is when that robot is called away, we are shown that she's okay. We see Mm -hmm. her visibly still breathing. And of course, when Leela finds D84 hovering over her body, that's when we get the iconic, please do not throw hands at me (laughs) line that you referenced so well earlier, Riley. So beautiful. Yeah, you stole that from the what was going to be used in the intro. <laughs> I thought you were either going to use that or you were going to use the I Heard a Cry. Yes. No, naturally, no. Second place was I Do Not Like This Metal World, Doctor. Mm, okay. <laughs> One of the things that I'm a little sad of because it's only a four parter, once Ivanov gets over himself and actually pairs up with Tuse, they are an excellent pair. Mm-hmm. I yeah. loved them together getting shit done. And I really like, I, I know I'm probably jumping around a bit, but just the whole, luckily they have no eye for art. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So good. They almost sort of become this Holmesian duo that Robert Holmes normally does so well, but I don't think he made many edits to this script. I think this is mostly Chris Boucher. And so to see that kind of dynamic outside of a Robert Holmes script kind of develop late on, I think is pretty cool. They work really well together. Also, I think this is where I mentioned this earlier. I really do like the idea of that you see so often in these type of things where whatever you do, I don't care who's on the other side of the door, don't open the door. And Uvanov is about to go there and open it. And then she's like, no. And she, too, is the one saying, like, obviously, this could be a trap because the doctor basically told us that because he knows that we still have a mystery player in the background. So you can't trust any voice that isn't a robot. And what I love about that is it almost comes from an earlier scene. With Leela. Yeah. Toos is about to give away hers and Leela's location to uh-huh. what she thinks is SV7. And Leela is like, no, tell it that we're in your cabin. 
And that's almost like an unspoken prompt of you can't trust anyone at this point. And that's then remembered by Toos later. It's unsaid, but it's there. And I love that. It's so smart. And I know we haven't talked much about the music, but I wanted to do one thing. Mm -hmm. There's a moment when the robots are marching by someone and it actually the music sounds a little bit like a heartbeat. And I think that was done on purpose. Mm. Mm. That little theme that Dudders gives the robots is so creepy. It makes them feel really menacing. It's really, again, really, really well done. And I've talked a lot about the director and the designers and the crew and the cast. Dudders is no exception. I think he's on point with this story. Yeah, he definitely does not detract from what's going on. With music, you either go along with what's going on or you sound really great on its own. But the main goal is just don't detract from what's happening. Don't be so bad that you're disengaging the audience. And if this had been season nine Dudders, oh where he God. just lets his cat go wild over oh, the synthesizer. That would, have been, that would have been painful. But this is season 14 Dudders, where he's really here to groove and it works well. Did anyone else, because this is a whodunit, my mind was really just kind of reeling at the possibilities as where suspicion is being moved from one character to another to another. And because I was still thinking about that black hole thing, at one point I was thinking, you know, maybe this Capel fellow isn't one of the crew members. It's actually D84. And really D84 isn't a robot. It's just Capel dressed like a robot. That's the beauty of those costumes, those robot costumes. You could just clearly say like, well, that's not a robot. That's a person wearing a robot costume and that'd be your twist because it would work. <laughs> See, I love that you hadn't seen this one before, that mm-hmm. neither of you had, and you were guessing the whole way through. I knew where this was going and mm-hmm. who did it. So I was viewing it through a very biased lens right. and trying to look for the giveaways and trying to suss out when exactly it becomes obvious about Dask. Is it the point where you see him after he's banged on the command center doors and they don't let him in and it cuts to him in his robot cosplay? Oh my God, that was the funniest (laughs) thing in the entire serial. Are you familiar with, I believe, someone on social media or I believe Instagram, or it's this guy, I believe he's in Thailand or Singapore called Low Cost Cosplay? That's what Dask is doing. (laughs) He's doing the low cost cosplay of these robots. (laughs) I think it just shows how utterly unhinged he is. You know, I've got to make myself look like a robot because I am one of them. They are my people. (laughs) It's crazy. And he's at a point now where he doesn't need to pretend to be one of the humans anymore or be part of human society. He can be his true deluded robot self. (laughs) All right, let's get towards the end here. Yeah, yeah. We are figuring out how are we going to destroy these robots? And of course, we come up with a plan that potentially could kill D84. And what I like what the doctor said, the doctor says that he's important as well. Yeah, again, it comes to the humanization of these robots. I love it. So the plan is, is we have this thing to activate to destroy the robots, but then we also have to get Dask in this place to actually use this gas because it's all voice-based. Okay, a little difficult, but we know that that is a central area for him to go to. And yeah, seeing D84 drag himself across the floor to activate this thing to help destroy the other robots is so sad. Yeah. yeah. And after he's been stabbed in the head with the probe. Yes. Right. That was hard to watch. The stabbing in the head was harder to see than the victorious sacrificing. But also, it was 
very much wiped clean because I did not realize how hilarious it is to hear someone be strangled when they have helium voice. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about this last scene very quickly before we talk about the strangulation. So Kapal is completely batshit insane. Oh, yeah. It's yes. not just about being raised by robots. I think it's the lack of any human interaction has driven him bonkers. And he wants to make the doctor suffer for ruining his plans. That is so human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not yeah. logical. Yeah, it's not. Just get rid of him. Right. And it kind of shows how Capel is just totally unhinged. He's not one of the robots at all, even if he thinks he is. He's deluded and just generally insane. Yeah, absolutely. And let's not forget, once the tables are turned on him and it is he who is strangled, we still have a little bit of extra fight left in SV7, which let's not pass up. That did kind of turn into a little bit of a shoulder rub of death. Yes, it was. I know that brought back some good memories. And poor Toos gets strangled again. (laughs) But everybody everybody is getting strangled in this. One of the things I wanted to mention, okay, so we finally remember that Leela has been helping out this whole time. Yeah. But then he gives her the worst nickname of Little Mouse. I hate it. I hate it. It doesn't stick. Don't Great. worry. Great. Perfect. I agree with Julia. Like, I wouldn't want that to be a thing, but I think it's fine for just the end of this episode and the last two minutes or so. Yeah. I think with the way this ends, they leave Uvanos, Tus, and poor Pool to be rescued. That doesn't sit well with me. No. No, I mean, well, it's just, we finished the scene in that control room. They're still down on the ground, like, unconscious. And then we cut forward to them just kind of walking back to the TARDIS, like, yeah, yeah. Some people are coming out there, they'll be taken care of. Like, can we at least see them stand up? <laughs> you know? I'm sure that they made sure they were okay before they went off. Yeah, I just would have liked to have seen that. It just doesn't feel right. And plus, the episode was only like 23 minutes long. They could have added mm. a couple seconds Uh, Yeah, all I need is like literally 10 seconds, like slap on the back. You okay? All right, good. All right, I'm out of here. Well, that's the end of the story because the TARDIS leaves and it rolls to credits. So what I do want to recap, because I think it's fairly momentous, is this ups our Philip Hinchcliffe women count by two. And we got a jelly baby. Did get a jelly baby? Does that mean our uh, Philip Hinchcliffe women count has been like increased by 100%? (laughs) for this season i mean we had two women in the hand of fear and now we've got two women here so yes it has for the season sad isn't it yes it is all right camp count points i do want to give a couple for taron capel's robot glam rock cosplay any other calls on that no that's got a bit pretty much the main one maybe pool's breakdown scene maybe was a bit over the top. So maybe a 0.5 there. I don't know. And Zilda getting upset about her brother. That was pretty terrible acting. I think okay. that deserves a 0.5. So let's go with three. Sounds good to me. Three points on the camp count. All right, let's go ahead and rate this one. And unfortunately, we start with me. And I say unfortunately, because the one thing I've been holding in is this is one of my favorite Doctor Who stories of all time. Oh, of oh. course. I would solidly say for me this is top five of all time Whoa, okay and i have given tens in the past to the mind robber genesis of the daleks and inferno and to me this is better than all three of those whoa 
So this is a solid, and I'm going to go into reasons afterwards, but I'm going to put my cards on the table. This is a solid 10 bloody robot hands out of 10 for me. All right. I think it's amazingly directed. I think it's amazingly acted. The design is gorgeous. I love the dynamic between the Doctor and Leela. I love the dynamic between the characters. Everything about it, to me, is just brilliant. And everything we've talked about that could be improved, I think are minor tweaks. I don't see a lot wrong with this. As I said, top five of all time for me. Wow. So, Julie, you're up next. Ugh, obviously, we all enjoyed this a lot. I don't know that I can find too much wrong with it. Actually, the thing that I found most wrong with it was that it was too short, which <laughs> is surprising. Has that ever happened? Has that <laughs> no. ever happened? No. No, no, it has not. As Anthony mentioned, the direction is great. The music is great. The acting is great. I don't want to follow this bandwagony thing because I've been a little bit more stingy on my tens, but I think I might give this 10 mohawk headdresses out of 10. Wow. Yes. All right, Riley, ruin the perfect score. Yes, please. <laughs> we know it's coming. Do it. I usually favor serials that are more original, but this is one of those where you see what they are going for and you just end up really enjoying it because they execute it just so damn well. The direction, while not necessarily unique or novel, was extremely well done. And of course, we've already brought up this before, but what really stands out to me is the art direction. It's amazing. It just, as a person who grew up in the 80s, it feels like the precursor of the look of those television shows that I was familiar with that I saw reruns of like Buck Rogers in the 25th century and the original Battlestar Galactica. The writing does a great job of actually giving depth to these characters. Obviously, not all of them get that, but that's hard to do with eight characters outside of our doctor and companion set. I actually felt like I understood what type of person they were, and that is really impressive to do in only four episodes. I understand that Anthony and Julie have given 10 out of 10s. That is fine. I really enjoyed this. This is one of those that I really would like to watch again, and I have enjoyed other ones, and I'm not saying that I wouldn't want to see those ones again, but this is one that I feel like I want to get back to this sooner rather than later. But... (laughs) There it is. uh, It's just... There's just one slight ding. It's just, I want something where I want that one little taste, like in a dish. I want something that I didn't expect. I wanted something original. So I have to give this one nine and a half fights lost to eyeliner out of 10. (laughs) I am done with you professionally. Oh my God. (laughs) I honestly thought this was our best shot for a perfect score. I think this one's that good. I'm sure we'll find something somewhere else later on, but I thought this was a good shot. And Riley, for the record, I'm not mad at you. This is still our highest scored story ever. Right. And I will tell you, there are times when we have these conversations where as we discuss it, I know I'm not alone in this, so we feel that our opinions slightly change. And I've had times where I've adjusted a score at most maybe one point, more often than not half a point. But I'm telling you, I've been staring at this (laughs) 9.5 since earlier this morning. Yeah. I've been staring at this 10 out of 10 since we started the Tom Baker era. (laughs) (laughs) I knew this was coming. But seriously, that gives us a story average for this of 9.83, which beats out our previous one of 9.75. And in all honesty, and I'm not going to try and do this every time, but I think Don would have scored this one really highly as well. Yes, most likely. This probably would have been knowing him a 9.5 or a 10. So I feel like this probably would have still been equal to or better than The Brain of Morbius, even if we had that additional score. 
Now, I did joke to Alan that if this was anything other than a straight 10 out of 10 across the board, that the podcast was over and I was done. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, that was a joke. We're good. Okay. Okay, well, we have a new champion. We will see if that ever gets beaten because it would require a solid 10 out of 10 from all of us to get higher than this at this point. So we're going to call it a day. New champion for us. 9.83 average. Once again, thank you everyone for listening. We would love to hear what you think of the Robots of Death. Let us know on our socials. Do you think it's as good as we think it was? But in the meantime, as always, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Murder on the Kill All Humans Express, was recorded on Monday the 20th of November 2023. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, when you find yourself in an Agatha Christie murder mystery, whether in space or on Earth, it's in your best interests to figure out who did it before they come for you.